This podcast is sponsored by CFA Institute, the global association of investment professionals whose mission is to lead the investment profession by promoting the highest standards of ethics, education, and professional excellence for the ultimate benefit of society. CFA Institute serves a global community of investment professionals working to build an investment industry where investors' interests come first, financial markets function at their best, and economies grow. The Chartered Financial Analyst Credential is the most respected and recognized investment management designation in the world. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of CFA Institute. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and this is Invest Like the Best. This show is an open-ended exploration of markets, ideas, methods, stories, and of strategies that will help you better invest both your time and your money. You can learn more and stay up to date at InvestorFieldGuide.com. Patrick O'Shaughnessy is a Principal and Portfolio Manager at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Patrick and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. My guest today is Brent Bishore. This is the first interview he has done in this format and his story is incredible. Brent's mission is, in the spirit of Buffett and Munger, to cultivate a disaster-resistant compound interest machine. Still just 33 years old, Brent has built a portfolio of private companies very quietly outside the limelight. He has no outside investors. The results he has generated are otherworldly. But his journey hasn't been easy. We discuss all the lessons he has learned along the way, sourcing and evaluating businesses, how he and his team have improved profitability at his portfolio companies after acquisition, and so much more. Okay, here we go. Please enjoy this conversation with Brent Bishore. All right, well, Brent, thank you so much for taking a bunch of time with me today. I think our goal will be to, uh, as you say in your firm's motto, explain what cultivating a disaster-resistant compound interest machine is all about. Uh, <laughs> so it sounds like uh, sounds like someone brilliant in marketing came up with that. I couldn't I couldn't come up with a much better slogan for building a business. Um, so so maybe what we could do is is start by you giving us a bit of background about. Um, who you are, how you got to this point, um, and why you've chosen kind of your path as the best way to express the things you're good at. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's a uh, it's a pleasure. I, I as I think I told you over email, I, I hope that I can provide negative framing to uh, uh, your other guests who's uh, who are the who's who of the finance world. So, so yeah. So so my journey has been very entrepreneurial and very winding, is how I would describe it. We started companies. We've bought companies, we've sold companies, we've invested early stage, we've done complete acquisitions. We've pretty much done almost all of it in an effort to find out what we think works better and uh, what doesn't. And I think that's, you know, kind of the, the motto that we always talk about is having the highest opportunity costs in the world and playing in the most inefficient markets, right? If you get nail those two things and you happen to be decent at what you're doing, I think it produces some pretty interesting results. So for us, I mean, the, the, the biggest opportunity that we see is participating in what we call the lower end of the lower middle market. So we look at companies that are between one and $10 million of owner earnings. And, and, you know, we looked at about two, little over 2000 of them last year in an effort to get three deals done. So 
very, very few uh, deals do we get done. We're trying to be very choosy. We're trying to find, <laughs> well, if you want to use a Ben Graham analogy, we're trying to pay for a cigar butt and, and hopefully get a cigar. So uh, how I describe what we do is we buy boring businesses and make them less boring. We pay a reasonable price for them, help the company's leadership to transition, and um, hopefully make everyone's life a little bit better. So I don't know if that gives you a good framing. It does. You already mentioned something very interesting, which is this this 2,000-sized um, universe that you looked at just last year. And there's there's been so much about the shrinking of public markets, both through buybacks, um, so so less float, uh, but also through companies going private, going out of business, fewer fewer publicly listed stocks. So it's a good reminder that there is a massive universe of businesses out there, which could be investment targets, acquisition targets. They're just private. For sure. Maybe we could back up even further to how you got to where you are today. So, what was your what was your early background? What did what did you study in school? Um, what were what were some what were some first jobs? You know, in, in your early twenties. Sure, you're right. So I let's see. I studied politics in college. I went to a real small small university in in Virginia called Washington and Lee, which most people think is either Washington University or William and Mary. It's actually neither. It's the ninth oldest school in the nation. It's uh, sort of famous bet- between George Washington and, and Robert. Lee were two of the people involved at the school at various times. Washington, uh, George Washington endowed it. So anyway, so I went there. Um, I went there because when I started looking at schools, I saw that there was this university that had produced the most presidents and CEOs of any school in the nation, uh, which happened to be Washington Lee. And it was ranked as the number two party school in the nation. So, you know, getting your priorities straight. Good combination. Exactly. And it was definitely a work hard, play hard sort of, uh, sort of place. Super smart people, way smarter than me. And uh, I was able to be coached up, I think, a lot through that process. But I studied politics and then I, I had an emphasis in poverty studies. So I got done with my uh, major at the end of my sophomore year and had an opportunity to major in college, I think is how I describe it for the final two years, and uh, got really interested in poverty, in human capability, and understanding, sort of looking through the eyes of somebody who had a very different background than me, urban poverty, rural poverty, did some really interesting research projects through that program. And actually, I'm still involved in that program today uh, on the on the board of directors for it now, and uh, really think it, it added up just unbelievable dimension to my life that uh, I'm you know, forever grateful to, to Harlan Beckley, who's the uh, director of that. So anyway, so after that, I uh, didn't know what I wanted to do. Somebody told me, well, if you don't know what you want to do, you either go to law school or get your MBA. And so I said, well, being an overachiever or trying to be an overachiever and arrogant, I said, okay, I'll just do both. So went, uh, came back home, Holmes, Missouri. I grew up in Joplin, um, and I wanted to get closer to my uh, grandparents, who I was really close with, and uh, spend some time with them uh, while I could. And went to get my law degree, my MBA. Got sick of school pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> I uh, uh, I don't know how PC this is, but I call it academic masturbation, right? So like just the idea of just doing things to do them instead of like you know I want to get out there and, and test get my ideas. Dirty, and, yeah. yeah, get my hands dirty, testing you know in the real world. So. So I started uh, a business uh, haphazardly. Um, it was an event marketing business. Uh, it was pretty much the worst business in the entire world. I was uh, had drank uh, a little too much the uh, night that I agreed to do it with my, my best friend's wife. And uh, the next morning I woke up and I was like, well, I'm committed. I got to do it now. 
Uh, I'd highly advise that you don't take a similar path, uh, but, uh, you know, it was low margin. It was high replacement value. It had no moat. We didn't have a ton of expertise. It was local. It, I mean, it was everything you don't want in a company, but I was able through that to realize what, you know, what I did want and, and it gave me a path forward. So, that led to starting an ad agency that grew pretty quickly, which led into starting a research firm, software development firm, and a film studio, which then led into this whole entrepreneurial journey of you know buying a company as a result of having some opportunities from that, seeing that side of the world, and sort of fast forward today, and, and we have five late-stage portfolios at this point that are all fairly good-sized companies. And then we have a number of, of early-stage investments that we mostly today focus on. Uh, partnering with people that we trust who are really good at that space. And, and it's just a small part of our portfolio in terms of uh, dollar volume. One of the interesting things that people out there may be uh, excited to hear about is how we met. So uh, <laughs> once again, Twitter proves to be a, a bizarre and very interesting place. I was working on a research project specifically on how public companies allocate their capital and whether or not there were better or worse strategies, um, even factors, quantitative factors that you could look at to differentiate companies. And so I asked publicly, is there anyone interested in talking about capital allocation? And, and that's how we connected and had a, a really interesting conversation. And what I found most fascinating was the fact that this is entirely sort of captive capital, that it's, it's your money, the company's money, there aren't outside investors. And that allows you to have what everyone says they have a long-term vision and goal, uh, but, but very few are actually able to execute on because capital is so fickle. Um, outside investors, as we know, hire and fire, um, at, at all the wrong times and way too often. And so I'd love to hear more about how that transition happened. Let's say from the last entrepreneurial or business experience you had into adventures where you then started investing in businesses. So what did you sell a prior business as a way of funding the initial, you know, the initial version of adventures? Well, you know, so it's interesting. We, we, the agency uh, started, you know, generating some cash flow uh, and, and by the nature of the business, we'd built up a good amount of accounts receivable. And so it was probably almost eight and a half years ago at this point, I had a, a mutual friend say, Hey, one of my buddies, is in the agency business, wants to sell his, his agency, and you should go talk to him. And I should say, buddy, it was a, an acquaintance of this person. And uh, so I was like, you know what, I'll just roll the dice and I'll go talk to him. And here I am thinking that the guy's primed up and ready for me to, uh, you know, to make him an offer and, you know, uh, all of that. And I sat down and he said, why in the hell am I sitting here? And he had been left at the altar twice before. And, and so we, we ended up over the course of about nine months striking a deal. And I leveraged the accounts receivable of my, my agency business to buy this other business, which is, he considered an agency. It's really uh, had a military focus and a recruitment focus. And we actually still own that company today. And, and we've done really, really well with that. You know, we, I, I joke sometimes that we, you know, we started with a micro capital base, but the, the beauty of compounding is when you can compound at a very high rate, uh, even small amounts of capital, as we found out, turn into larger amounts of capital over time. So we took that business and, and were able to um, grow it pretty considerably and have owned it since. And it's, it's been really a nice investment. We also, through another one of our investments, we started another company, uh, co-founded it called Influence Co., 
that was on the Forbes Most Promising Companies list uh, was Inc. 500 this year, and it's really been a nice investment as well. And then we, through the through the years, have had small, I would say, you know, singles and and maybe doubles with different things we've done. But I mean, it takes time, right? You know, anybody who claims that they're uh, any sort of overnight success is it's just just full of it. And we've, you know. We've toiled away <laughs> very, very long in obscurity, and, and rightfully so. We had to get our stuff together. And so it's been just really about building capital as we've been able to do well in the businesses, letting it sit on our balance sheet, and, and not trying to get greedy. What were some of the early books or influences that shaped your investment approach? I know, I know you and I offline have talked a lot about sort of the classic margin of safety, Munger and Buffett, but everyone knows about that stuff. And it could be that simple. It could be that, you know, this is, there's a lot of wannabe Buffett's out there uh, <laughs> and, it, and it, ne- it never really works out. And, sure. and maybe, maybe this is, is something different, but maybe explain your early influences and what shaped how you go about evaluating companies now? Yeah. Um, so, okay. The the I, I've got to admit, uh, I I read pretty much everything Buffett and Munger have ever said or written. Right. I think that's almost table stakes these days. If you're going to be in the investing business, I'd say you know in terms of books that really helped shape what I was thinking. Poor Charlie's Almanac. You know what Peter Kaufman put together there was just. I mean, just spectacular, right? And the clarity of thought, I think, was was really important. I'd say that some of the the books that maybe not as well known. The fish that ate the whale was a big influence on me. Really? Yeah. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever read it, but it's about, I have a lot of, Oh, you have a lot of, a lot of Buffett similarities. I actually wrote an article called, Oh, really? Uh, well, I'll send it to you sometime soon. Um, uh, basically the similarities between, I'm forgetting the guy's name, the banana King, Sam, Sam Zamuri. Yeah. Yeah. Zamuri. And we have, we have a Tulane guy here at our firm. So, so that's how I came across him. Interesting. Um, but but yeah, an amazing, amazing book. Yeah, I'd highly recommend it. It's actually one of my favorite books that, that just it's not a you know super long read, but you talk about a guy who immigrated from Russia, had nothing, hustled, 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 had no capital base, had nothing to do except for just hustle. And he ends up basically taking over the one of the largest companies in the world, is responsible for um, the term the banana republics and had an amazing impact and amazing, not always in good ways. I mean, I, I think that, you know, he's a really good example of, of how everyone's a mixture of virtue and sin. Right. Um, but it also showed me, you know, what you can do with almost nothing and what you can, how, you know, almost nothing can turn into a tremendous amount over time. And by making, you know, wise decisions. The, the story that I always remember from that book is that early on he he had nothing as you said and was was trying to sell bananas and the big sellers would basically discard overly ripe bananas and he would snatch them up uh, for free so uh, no no cost of goods and just through hustling would rush them to vendor sites before they went bad um, and sell them to vendors and that exemplified the rest of his life and career where it was just out hustling out efforting everyone. And, and just an amazing guy. Yeah, he, I, I love, and that's, that's a, a good thing to bring up. I mean, that story alone, it shows you, you know, you're taking a byproduct basically of a big company, right? So they were, they were trying to take the, the bananas and, you know, develop a really long supply chain, right? So, but you had to, whenever the bananas for the big companies were loaded in, they were all green bananas because they had to travel such a long distance and took such a long time. So they literally would just take like really good bananas that you'd want to eat now 
and just dump them. They were a complete waste. And so, it, yeah, it's an amazing story of how you can take a byproduct um, that no one else wants and turn it into gold. And, I mean, he ended up, he ended up taking over that company. Um, I think it was called the United Fruit Group or United Fruit Company or something like that. But uh, um, anyway, so, yeah, I would say that's a big book. Um, you know, I really like the book Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, which may sound like an interesting investing recommendation, but it really talks about the psychology of self-deception. And I think, you know, that is something that in, you know, what is Buffett's rule? Rule number one, don't lose money. What's rule number two? Remember rule number one, right? And like the easiest way to lose money is by deceiving yourself and thinking that you're getting into something that's just not true. And so the illustrations that are in that book of how we can deceive ourselves, I think is just, I don't know, it's had a, it's had a big impact on the way I think about things. Kind of like Dan Ariely's book about dishonesty. That's another, another really interesting one to just really hold the mirror up about who we really are, I guess would be a way to say it. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to come back a lot to psychology because one of the things we've talked about that I find most interesting is how the importance of psychology, if anything, is amplified in the market that you're operating in um, with with smaller businesses. So we'll come back to that. But before we get there, um, so so rewinding back to the first, you know, the first major the military company, which was, I guess, finance, you know, through leveraging receivables. How now do you source financing for new acquisitions or investments? Do you use debt or is it just cash? Yeah, so um, we, we, we do use a little bit of debt. I think debt's a, that's probably a fascinating topic to discuss independently, right? It's really hard to hurt good companies without the use of debt. And so we're very reluctant to put much debt on a company or even come close to the line where you say, mm, maybe it's not, not wise. So we try to stay clear of that line. You know, in terms of financing, so it's in all internal capital. So we harvest uh, excess capital from our existing investments. Uh, we pool that together. It's very much a, gosh, if you want to call it a barbell strategy, right? We have a cash sitting on the balance sheet, and then we have these highly illiquid, highly profitable investments. And we, at, you know, over time, as those investments bear fruit, we we harvest that cash and then really just pool it together. So we are using. So I would call a modest amount of debt in some of the deals, depending on the type of company, right? Some companies can handle debt better than others. The less variance, right? The less cyclicality that it experiences, um, uh, the more reasonable it is to put a, a considerable amount of debt on it. The more uh, visibility you have into the future, the, 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 more, the easier it is to, uh, to put debt on the company. So currently today, I mean, uh, we're, we're trying to use as little debt as possible, that we think is reasonable. So, so you said, could you just outline once more the current kind of makeup of the portfolio? So the number of, uh, you know, the major, the major businesses you own, and then also the seed stage ones and kind of just give a a flavor of the profile of of the overall portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we have, um, like I said, five late stage portfolio companies. So we have the uh, military recruitment firm uh, called Media Cross based out of St. Louis. We also have a uh, fairly big office in Norfolk, Virginia, and it does what I would call the hardest recruiting jobs for the military. So in the past, we have recruited physicians into the U.S. Army Reserve. We've recruited very specific types of instructors into various parts of the, the military and government. And uh, the largest contract today is um, recruiting civilian mariners into a branch of the military, a branch of the Navy, actually, that resupplies the ships that never come into port. So it's a really fascinating business. It's a it's been an interesting journey to watch the efficiency of what we're able to do for the government. You know, it, it's so easy to, to follow the narrative of all oh, those darn government contractors. They're, you know, taking everyone's money. They, you know. 
Uh, they're not efficient. I can tell you that we we do an amazing job on behalf of the government, and uh, they they issue something called a CPAR report card, and our marks on there. I think we've been gosh twelve or thirteen years uh, straight of just excellence across the board, which puts us you know in the very top of government contractors. But it's a it's a great partnership. That's really what it is. Um, so we've got that business. We've got another company that we helped co-found called Influence and Co. Uh, Influence & Co. supplies content to some of the top publications in the English language and works with Fortune 500 companies, venture-backed uh, startups to help land columnist opportunities, sometimes one-off columns, sometimes uh, ongoing column gigs at these various publications. And, and really, it's kind of a matchmaking service with a lot of expertise built in on both sides. So we've got that that company. That was the company I, I referenced before that uh, was on the Inc. 500 this last year and should be on the Inc. 500, I would guess, for the you know, foreseeable future. It's really done uh, done amazingly well. We own the, uh, I think it's safe to say now, it used to be the second largest pool builder in the country, swimming pool builder. Uh, so construction business, uh, I think they're the largest now in the country would be my guess. And then we own two manufacturing companies that manufacture products in the swimming pool space. And uh, it's our patented products we manufacture in China, and then we import and actually distribute worldwide. So that's the late stage portfolio. The early stage portfolio really varies. We've got great investment, amazing service called Zapier. I don't know if you ever heard of it. They help connect the APIs of various software. So let's say you wanted to say, everyone I talk to on Twitter, I want to take that contact information. I want to put it into Salesforce, and I want to set a reminder for you know, six months later to contact that person in my calendar. Zapier does all of that seamlessly. So we were the first money into uh, uh, Zapier. They went through Y Combinator. Wonderful company, great people. Uh, we're a very small investor in Mattermark. Uh, it's a company in San Francisco, uh, which actually we found through uh, AngelList. We've been big fans of AngelList and what Naval and that group's built. Um, it's been a really interesting to watch them evolve over time and just couldn't be bigger fans of that work. So I don't know if that gives you a good flavor, but it really is across the board. It's, you know, military, it's software, it's construction and we're, you know, manufacturing. We're really, we're fairly agnostic. Our rule is as long as we can really get to know the business and, and understand the wins in the industry. Yeah, it's, it's a great overview and it begs the next question, which is maybe the thing I'm most interested in across our whole conversation is how you filter. So you mentioned, you know, the number 2000 companies that you at least um, looked at to some degree. So what, what are you looking for? And maybe what are you looking for at different levels of interest? So obviously there's a ton you just screen out right away. How do you do that? How do you then take a, a more narrow list um, and decide whether or not you are going to make offers, do further diligence? A, a walk through your process would be extremely interesting given, given how different it is in, in smaller private businesses. Yeah. So um, I would say most of the time, it's pretty easy to see that there's nothing differentiated about the business. And I would say, when I say nothing differentiated, I don't mean that the business itself isn't differentiated because anybody who's making at least a million dollars a year in a business, there's some reason why they're doing that, right? There's some product market fit there. They're providing value to their customers. Unfortunately, most of the businesses that we see are, are the extension of the owner. So uh, we can't buy a business or it's very, very difficult, I would say, to buy a business where almost all of the value of the company is tied up in the goodwill of the owner. So, you know, there's some guys, we looked at a business recently that was in the furniture space. Everyone in town knew the guy. He had great labor relationships. He, you know, had great financing relationships with all the banks. 
He had every relationship in his industry and people just liked him, right? That's a moat in and of itself, you know, longevity over time. So what we try to look for is where is the advantage of the company if it's not in the owner? And most of the companies, I would say of those 2000 we reviewed, gosh, probably we only got serious and by the way, serious, I said, you know, taking a much harder look on three or 400. Most of them are fairly obvious that it's uh, commodity type business, that it's really the ownership that's driving it. And, you know, one of my favorite phrases is small businesses don't stay small on purpose. And so what we're really trying to understand when we first look at a business is why is the business smaller, right? When I say small, that's not to me an insult. I'm, I'm saying in the you know sort of sphere of businesses, let's say if you're running a 10 or $15 million company and you've been running it for 30 years, like that's still considered a smallish business. So why has it stayed small? You know, what, what are the things that it's maybe lacking or it's doing that it shouldn't be doing or misallocating resources, just not optimal. And then we try to figure out, is there a way that we can step in and help that transition in a way that's meaningful? So the first thing we're really trying to understand when it gets through the kind of the first filter of, do they have some sort of an unfair advantage or any, any sort of hint of advantage? I say, I think that's the, the first filter. And the second filter would be how much money do they actually make? What's their, we call it owner earnings. So owner earnings being defined as EBITDA plus or minus how much capital is really required to operate the business. We looked at a company recently that was making $6 million a year of EBITDA, but the owners could really only keep about $2 million a year uh, of that business, right? Like that's not a, it's not a fantastic business in and of itself. I mean, it's making $2 million a year is really what it comes down to it. But when you use a term like EBITDA, which we can obviously riff on for a long time, it just doesn't it doesn't add up in that way. Bullshit earnings, as Munger would say. <laughs> exactly, uh, that's near and dear to my heart. Yes, so so we you know we're really trying to understand how much they earn, what's the stability of earnings, what's the visibility into future earnings, um, and then how much of that is tied to the current ownership. So I mean that's kind of the next filter down, and some stuff we just can't we just can't figure out answers to those questions, right? Uh, we looked at a cell phone technology recently that was doing extremely well, um, and we had an inside look at it, and we just couldn't figure out their largest customers were all the big telecoms, and we couldn't understand and we couldn't get comfortable with, you know, how long would they stay? Could it be disrupted? It's just, it, you know, it's sort of like Buffett Munger's too hard pile, right? So we're big believers in that concept that almost everything should go into the too hard pile, and then you sort of have a I don't know, negative filtering of everything else, right? If it doesn't go in your too hard pile, then wow, why why is that? So sort of default to no and then force yourself into the yes column only if everything sort of lines up. So I'd like to talk for a minute about the people selling to you and their motivations because one of the things I'm always interested in in public markets is is who's on the other side of the trade. You know, what what do they what, what are their motivations and what do they know that, that we don't? So so how often is your edge, so to speak, someone that needs, say, just liquidity, that they've you know, they've built a business and they're they want to retire or move on? What kind of multiples are you are you willing to stretch to and what kind of competition do you face or maybe an example of, of some stiff competition you faced when you found a business you really like, uh, but, but have to discipline yourself in, in not, in not getting into a bidding war of sorts. Well, so to answer your, your last question first, uh, we have to discipline ourselves almost every day, if not every week. Right. I mean, it is, 
<laughs> we you can go out and and buy and buy and buy. There is an ocean of companies for sale. The the trick is to make sure that you're not overpaying. Uh, and we've seen a lot of this. You know, the multiples have now risen pretty con- considerably depending on the sector you're in. And everyone, you know, the, the the bias is most of these sellers are selling for the first time, so they don't know what reality is. Everyone loves their own business, right? It's their baby. How much is your baby worth? It's worth a lot. I, you know, <laughs> it's it's hard to get some sort of baseline. And so, you know, we often find that. Uh, unfortunately, especially in the lower end of the lower middle market, there's a lot of intermediaries that are willing to uh, BS their potential clients in order to get their business and put them on the market and tell them unreasonable multiples. The good ones don't do that. The good ones for sure are extremely valuable. We see, do see a lot of you know, people saying to a you know, fairly commodity business that's doing a you know, million dollars a year of owner earnings, yeah, it's worth six, seven times earnings. Like that's just, you know, Unless you're in aerospace or something with high predictability and, you know, contractual relationships, I just that that's not going to fly. But occasionally you can find some retired executive who wants to jump back in the game, who's never run a small company and thinks they can do it, who will overpay. Right. I mean, this is the definition of inefficiency. You know, if you can if you can try to lose money and you can easily, then then by definition, it's inefficient. Right. So, you know, I would say that 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 we do face a lot of stiff competition. There's um, we've you know, we never used to run into private equity groups, traditional fund based private equity groups below, gosh, five million dollars of EBITDA to use an industry standard term, which I hate. But that's kind of the way people talk about it. So below five million, we never used to see competition just by the nature of how asset prices are. I mean, maybe not to veer too far out of my circle of competence here, but I think things are fairly high. Um, And with interest rates being so low, it obviously inflates the values of every asset. And I think we're seeing that to some degree in our market. So, you know, we we look forward to the day when there's kind of a washout and we can be holding cash, uh, if that makes sense. Have you ever had a scenario where there's more to do than you can either fund internally or, or via debt, which is another way of asking, would, have you ever considered or would you consider taking outside capital? Yeah. I mean, this is uh, yes, we have. We actually went through this exercise recently and it's been, it's been a tough, it's been a tough decision-making process. We find stuff that is just too big for us to bite off. And uh, we have considered partnering uh, on some things, but there's just such an opportunity with the capital base we have now to generate really just unsustainable returns is how I describe it. They're so good that it's hard to give them up to other investors right now. So we really haven't. I recently had a conversation with a guy. I, uh, I just can't tell you how much I respect him. who's a legendary investor in his own right. And he said, Brent, you got your head up your ass. You're not thinking about it the right way. It's not about the money. It's about getting the right people, the smartest people, the wisest people, the most connected people in the world and getting them to care about what you're doing. And I said, oh, gosh, it's hard I get it. And I, I, I probably am wrong on the topic. And, and I think that we will end up um, taking outside capital sometime in the future. It's just hard when you're generating, you know, unbelievable returns and what you're doing to, to take a passive investor and say, even though I really don't need to, here's here's how I, you know, I want to start shoveling money over in a different direction, if that makes sense. So what kind of returns are we talking about? You know, returns on capital or however, however you want to, however you want to formulate it. 
ballpark. Yeah, so we we've been okay. Some some combination of lucky and good, and I even hate talking about the numbers rather than in specifics, just because it, it does seem you know pretty fantastic. But you know we're buying at let's say an average multiple of around four times owner earnings. So our what I would call base case yield, if the business doesn't go up at all, if the business doesn't go down at all, uh, we're generating about a twenty five percent return. From there, we have a history of taking companies that are uh, that we're buying around a four times multiple, sometimes even lower, and then we're doubling or tripling the profitability over a fairly short period of time. So when you do the math on that, it's pretty decent returns. It's it's uh, you know you see a lot in value investing circles and in public markets, and I'll say that owner earnings, and I you know I know your exact calculation is is relatively similar to free cash flow as we would define it. And in, in public markets, you know, you see a 10% free cash flow yield. And that is, that's pretty impressive, um, as a steady state. And, to, you know, to talk about, you know, two and a half times that as, as your, um, kind of starting point shows the power of, we'll call it a much less efficient market to hunt in where, you know, your scale, your, your smaller scale is a huge, a huge advantage. Exactly. And this is, I mean, I, I, I know Howard Marks has talked about this a lot. I know that some of the top investors, you know, everyone says like, you know, play your strengths, right? So if you're, if you have a tiny amount of money, you know, don't go and compete against Ray Dalio, right? Like that's not like, that's not the, the best waters to probably fish in. If you think that's what you want to do for a living, right? If you're not indexing and going that direction. But yeah, I mean, the, the reason why, okay, so let's go back to the kind of the, the underlying theory behind what we're doing. So if we're starting at a 25% cash on cash yield, right? Pre-tax, everything's pre-tax I'm talking about right now, because most of the businesses that we buy, actually all of them currently right now that we own are all pass-through entities, right? So I'm taxed personally, we're not taxed at the corporate level. But when you talk about, you know, the types of yields, it would indicate that there's something going on. Not only is it inefficient, but it's also really, really, really hard. And we happen to have found a niche and, and learned things that, that are fairly uncommon, right? Um, that's why we're allowed to get the returns that we're generating. Um, I think, you know, hopefully we're good at it. Uh, some combination of, you know, being lucky and being good, but, you know, just to, to, I don't want your listeners to think, oh gosh, well, I should go out and immediately drop, you know, my entire, uh, savings on some small business. Like there's no faster way to lose your money than to do that. Just as a disclaimer, not that any of this is financial advice, but yeah, I want to make sure your your listeners don't take take well, it as lo- advice. We are loaded up with uh, disclaimers on this. <laughs> good, 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 good. <laughs> so, so you mentioned something earlier, which was interesting. So, you've got your screening process. You're you're looking for really solid, but maybe even boring businesses where you're where you're not reliant on the goodwill and sort of the the owner as driver and leader of the success of the business. Um, and you're paying a fair price, right? So it all seems really reasonable. Obviously, sounds a lot easier than it is in practice. Um, anyone with hands-on experience knows that. But then you mentioned that one of the other things that happens is that the profitability levels um, often grow pretty fast from the from the point of your acquisition forward. So I'd love to hear more about that because you know one of the models I'm fascinated with and. I guess just broadly speaking is the venture model. Uh, but Andreessen Horowitz, regardless of their returns, and, and I think they borrowed this strategy from the entertainment industry. One of their things is it's not just a check. 
it's it's a whole bunch of connections, um, efficiencies, services, et cetera, expertise um, that can make the business a lot better after acquisition. So how do you think about that? What what are the employees that you have that, that work on that? Um, talk about expanding the profitability post-acquisition. So I, I think it can f- fall into kind of a, a few different buckets. The, the first bucket is what are the things that the business is doing that it shouldn't be doing? Um, and, and this may sound, you know, like a no, no kidding, of course, sort of, you know, yes, the lowest hanging fruit. And, and it is in most businesses. So if you think about it, if, if one person's been running a company for 30 years, at a certain point, just human nature is to get used to whatever you have. Um, you know, some people call that the hedonic treadmill, right? Like I I think the principle also works for, for these smaller companies in the sense that there's a lot of things that, you know, coming in with a fresh set of eyes and just asking, Hey, why are we doing things that way? Like, why are we taking, you know, $150,000 here and plowing it into that? doesn't seem like that's generating good returns. And they kind of, you know, we'll look at you and depending on the nature of the relationship, either be irritated that you're bringing that stuff up or say, yeah, you know what? It's just, I've had other things to do. I got busy. Right. And, and that's an honest, I mean, we all do this in our lives, right? It's not, it's not a value judgment at all. And these people are, are, you know, without exception, every single person we've ever transacted with is very good at what they do, but they've been doing it for a long time. So we come in and, and typically are asking, you know, what I would call the dumb questions, which usually yield some sort of result. Um, to give you an example on this, um, we bought uh, one of the businesses and it was putting quite a bit of money through through media, buying media. And we came in and we asked, well, why don't we put all that buy through credit cards? And the owner was like, well, because we don't want the debt. You know, we, we, we just like to do everything in cash. And I said, well, sure, let's pay it off. But we get an extra 30 days float on all that money. Right. And we get an extra one percent, one and a half percent yield on that spend. And he just couldn't wrap his head around it. He just was like, no, I just we've always done it this way. And I said, well, you know, now that we're in the driver's seat, that's what we're going to do. And by God, we immediately did it and started generating one and a half percent in profit above and beyond on that spend through the credit card rebates. And our cash flow jumped by, gosh, I don't know, half a million dollars. Like, that's not complicated. Yeah, very, very simple things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I would say that the, sort of the, the, the one bucket is what are the things that the company's doing that, that they shouldn't be doing? Or what are the easy ones that you just you know, sort of flip a switch on? Those are typically pretty rare depending on the situation. And we try to get to know those through due diligence and have a pretty good idea of you know, how we want to handle those. The harder question is what are the additional services we're providing? How are we helping and jumping in? And really, honestly, we, we've been having this conversation a lot recently. We, we've historically tried to uh, under-promise and over-deliver. Um, one of the uh, intermediaries I respect most uh, that we've gotten to work with said, you guys do an absolute crap job of selling yourselves, which is sort of ironic <laughs> given circumstances. But you know, we, we have three primary buckets we, we like to look at. We like to look at marketing, advertising, and lead gen as sort of one bucket uh, that's my background. I come at most things from a marketing mindset and that comes with advantages and disadvantages. And a lot of the team members around me are there because their expertise is, and their mindset's very different than mine. So the second bucket we look at is technology. We like to call ourselves technology agnostic to us. What that means is we're not 
thrilled with technology. We don't think you need to be the first adopter of technology. In fact, we think there's a lot of value destruction by sort of implementing the latest and greatest, you know, uh, we would not recommend that our, you know, military recruitment company jump on Snapchat right now. I don't think that's going to be yielding the highest results, um, but maybe someday. And we also, at the same time, are comfortable with technology. So we've had a lot of experience building out mobile applications, mobile sites, databases, you know, just different software systems. And so we try to come in and implement, well, recommend, I should say, not implement, but help them understand what technology could how it could be valuable? One of the things that you know we we are going to very rarely touch on 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 this podcast for sure, and which means it's interesting to talk to you about it is the first one. So this idea of lead generation and marketing. Um, I talked to uh, Ted Sides uh, about hedge funds and the importance of charisma, um, which which I guess is is one form of marketing. But maybe you could flesh that out a bit more. Um, I, I know. For example, that you write for Forbes and that your articles are, you know, broadly about business, thinking, strategy, what have you, uh, but that those serve as sources of leads, um, for, com- you know, people, companies contacting you because of what they read. Um, so that's ju- just one example. Maybe you call that content marketing. Maybe, maybe expand on, on your, on your marketing background, how you think about it, what strategies are effective. And for anyone that's running a business out there, maybe something they could think about that they aren't already. Yeah. So I I think marketing is actually fairly simple, but has some interesting, I guess you could call it tactical secrets, right? So content marketing is sort of a hot rage right now. Everyone's doing it. Everyone wants to be in it. And I think, you know, using that as an example, uh, is content marketing a good use of resources? Well, it depends on your opportunity costs, right? Depends on what other channels you have. Most people think content marketing is, oh, write a great piece of content, whatever great means. And regardless of audience, right? Write a quote unquote great piece of content and people will be beating down your door. And that just doesn't make any sense, right? If you think about the, the, the value chain that would have to occur for, for that to produce, you know, call it a new customer and new investment for us, that, that means that, you know, let's say on average on a Forbes piece, if it does pretty well, 10,000 people would read it. Okay, well, so now you've got, uh, you know, a universe of 10,000 people who have read an article. Of those people who are qualified to sell their business and actively looking to sell their business, likely none, probably, (laughs) maybe one to three, hopefully, then they've got to read that article. They've got to think, think to themselves, gosh, that was so stellar. I wonder who wrote that. Then they've got to find my byline. They've got to click through to my website. They've got to spend time reading my website. Oh, by the way, this entire time they can't get interrupted or distracted because they'll probably forget. Right? So what are the chances that somebody who reads that article is going to come through and, you know, raise their hand and say, you know what? I think adventures is, the place that I want to go to sell my business. It, it, it almost never happens. And this is kind of the tactical, using that as an example of, of how to think about it. But once somebody has found us, regardless of the way they found us, content is crucial to scaling education and trust. So the way I like to think about content is it allows you to spend a lot of time on one conversation, one conversation being the content itself, that you can then have that conversation at no additional time to yourself. So it's kind of like the software business and its scalability to be able to scale that trust and scale that education with a potential client, partner, employee. I mean, there's endless uses of it, but it allows you to scale conversations that just really weren't available before. I mean, why do we think we know celebrities so well? Why do we, 
you know, we're all wired to think in a sort of tribe-like fashion. And when you watch somebody or you read something they wrote or listen to a podcast, you sort of feel like you're getting to know them, even though you're not, <laughs> right? I mean, you kind of are, but you're kind of not. You're scaling that conversation. So I don't know if that makes sense. You know, every situation is a little bit different, and I hate to, you know, use the old, it depends. But but really, for, for marketing, I would say most people fall down by not understanding the value chain that it would take for somebody to be successful. And so at the end of the day, all marketing is is sort of a value funnel concept. You know, you try to dump as many people of you know, that are qualified and that could possibly want whatever it is that you're selling in the top and then move them down through the funnel over time. And how do you move them down through the funnel? It's trust and education. So overcoming what are their concerns, their questions, you know, are you legitimate? Do you have value? Are you thoughtful? Do you have integrity? Do you, you know, all the questions, you know, are you going to screw me at the first opportunity? You know, how would I, how would I know how to use your product? How would I know, you know, the, the potential options that I can customize it or, you know, whatever the situation is, you know, content is an amazing way to push people down that funnel. But most people have these, you know, I would say highly, uh, a mismatch of expectations, uh, and I think that's where a lot of the, the value is lost. Um, you know, an old quote in the ad agency businesses, you know, I know half my, my marketing spend is wasteful. I just don't know which half, you know, I think that I think that's a lot where it originates is people are just not understanding how that value chain is connected. So we spend a lot of time with our companies trying to figure out what is that value chain? What are the highest opportunities? Mass media still holds look a lot of value. I'm actually kind of a contrarian. I love direct mail. I think direct mail is awesome. <laughs> Um, mostly because no one else is doing it and because it actually gets in people's hands uh, remarkably. But um, a lot of that stuff that's out of fashion, I think is out of fashion for maybe the wrong reasons or shouldn't be nearly as out of fashion. And a lot of things that are the hot new thing, you know, just getting on Snapchat's not going to drive leads to your business. You got to understand how to use it and you got to use it sort of best practices around it. And it's got to make value, you know, sense to your value to your uh, target audience too. Did you ever read either Robert Collier's letter book or scientific advertising? I wrote scientific advertising. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, uh, it's kind of a fun, weird sub, sub, sub genre of books about how to write direct mail ads, which sounds like no one would want to read it. But, but what really is great about the, those two books in particular is that they're great, like writing tutorials, um, about removing fluff, focusing on, uh, focusing on you, not, or on them, not you rather. Um, and, and maybe two more books that people might be interested in checking out. Um, so I never really thought about it that way. Um, certainly no marketing, uh, genius by any, by any stretch. <laughs> I think you're doing um, okay. <laughs> but, but the, maybe we could use an example of one to remove or to neuter your, it depends. Maybe we could focus on, um, just one example. So the one that seems obvious in your portfolio would be influence and co just because of the title. Um, so if you can, would you be willing to walk through marketing in the context of that business and kind of how that, how, what that funnel looks like? Absolutely. Um, be happy to. And it's, it's, it's really interesting because they definitely eat their own dog food, right? They are that, that business. I mean, it's, it's based out of Columbia, Missouri, which is, you know, my hometown where I am recording this podcast right now, uh, not based out of New York, not based out of San Francisco. And really no one had worked in marketing except for me before we founded that company. So you take a company that you know, is, is full of young people that's in the middle of the country. And you say, how in the world have they grown? I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of percent, you know, on an annual basis, you know, moving back, it's through content marketing, 
right? And, and content marketing, you know, the name of the company is Influence & Co. Because what they really try to help, like I said, bigger companies, oh, I should say bigger, bigger-ish companies or venture-backed companies to use content to drive influence. And so driving influence has, you know, a lot of different opportunities depending on who you're trying to drive influence with. Most people uh, think about it only in terms of, your customers are gaining, you know, gaining additional clients. Uh, but there's a lot of other ways to use content, you know, to attract employees and talent to, uh, we had a, actually one of the clients that business raised over a million dollars of venture capital, like out of the blue, because one of their, uh, potential investors read an article that she had written, uh, this uh, female entrepreneur had written and said, Oh my gosh, that is the company I want to invest in. So it has a lot of different applications. And I guess that was my point kind of in content marketing, talking about that. So what they do, is they eat their own dog food. They're out there publishing a ton. You know, they have columnist opportunities at all the top publications. And uh, they're using that to build influence amongst their customers, right? Venture-backed companies and CMOs, VPs of marketing, using those to start conversations, using those to, I mean, really just develop relationships with what it comes down to. You know, it's not a quick and easy sell. A lot of times people have to, you know, understand what is it exactly that you're doing and how are you doing it? So there's a lot of education. There's a lot of trust building and they're doing it typically from afar, although they travel a tremendous amount. So, yeah, I I don't know if that, I mean, I'm happy to go into more details. I mean, they have that website optimized for downloading content, gated content. They're doing, you know, lead gen forms. They have a pop-up that allows you to talk to somebody on staff anytime. I mean, the best practices and sort of conversion optimization, I would say that they're uh, using as well. But I mean, the primary driver of their uh, value is the product that they sell, which is using content that's delivered offsite, uh, linked back to on your own site. Uh, but, you know, putting an article on a Forbes or an Inc. magazine or entrepreneur or, you know, Wall Street Journal or whatever it is. And hopefully your target customers will read that. And if they find you some other way, they'll look at that content and say, hmm, these are people that answered all my questions and helped develop trust with them. Let's talk a bit about data, how you use it, um, whether or not you, you're a believer in, in gathering, you know, detailed customer data, which is certainly in the entertainment side of things becoming, you know, the, the lifeblood of the Netflixes and Amazons and, uh, you know, these massive, I think now the top five companies in public markets are all tech companies. Um, and, and a lot of that is, you know, facility with data to improve, um, interactions with customers, et cetera. Um, obviously, obviously I'm a huge believer in applying data to just about every aspect of business and investing. And, and as, as a sort of, um, 1A question on, on the data question is maybe you could touch for a minute about your uh, new relationship with Shane Parrish. I know a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people will know Shane, um, and Farnham Street. Um, and, and if you don't, you should for sure go check out what is a wealth of interesting writing on all, on all things really. Um, and a great source of books in and of itself, but maybe touch on, on, Data, I know one of Shane's many, many competencies is working with data um, and, and how you incorporate that in, in the overall adventures business. Yeah. Well, so actually getting back to one of your early, and I'll talk about Shane as part of the answer, but getting back to one of your earlier questions about sort of how do we do value adds that, you know, I talked about we have three buckets. One is marketing advertising. The second one uh, is technology. And then the third one is what I would call business systems. And the whole point behind business systems for us is does the management team, executive team for sure, and hopefully even a layer two beyond them, have access to good, clean, actionable data? 
And to give you an idea of where the bar typically is, um, and I say typically is not to call anybody out, but most of the companies that we see, their owners probably beyond the basic numbers don't understand how the business runs. In fact, I would say a good chunk of them don't even know how much money they actually make. And through our process of you know due diligence and helping you know helping them even understand where their business really is, it's sometimes a painful process. So we try to create scalable systems, try to help the companies get data and be able to look at dashboards and and make good decisions. That's what it ultimately comes down to, which is perfect lead in for Shane. I've known Shane for gosh a while now, uh, probably four years. And he's just a, he's a remarkable human being. He's an awesome, awesome guy in and of himself, super smart, very driven. Yeah, I, we, I've been a, been a longtime admirer and we've gotten to be good friends. And through the process, you know, he's done some quite a bit of public investing and done very well in the public markets. He also worked for an intelligence agency and has a background in technology. He's a computer programmer by background and happens to be an amazing writer as well. I mean, if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know just right there. And so, you know, over time, <laughs> we'd have very transparent conversations about what he wanted to do with the rest of his life and what we were doing. And, you know, we shared information and uh, we were kind of a, I, I joke that uh, we have a group called the Nerd Squad, that uh, there's four of us who email, I would say, three to 10 times a day, various articles and books that we're reading and observations about the world and really just share information to try to, you know, help each other get a little bit better each day. And so Shane and I got to know each other through thousands of emails probably and spending a lot of time together uh, in person. And and eventually it made sense to uh, have him come on board. And so we're couldn't be more excited about it. He came on, he's actually, I think finishing up his first month. He came on September 1st officially and uh, full time. And uh, he's still, Farm Street's still doing doing its thing. Uh, he's still involved in that. We absolutely want him to be involved in that. That is a fantastic opportunity for us. But I think it's a great opportunity for him too to use the, you know, the mental models and the principles that he's, you know, been so deeply immersed in, as well as his, uh, I would say, more formalized skill set to help us build out systems and technology and really bring a depth of understanding to. Uh, uh, to the company that's, I, I think, pretty unusual in, in the space we play in. So one of the, it's a good bridge into my next question, which is one of the kind of Buffett maxims is this idea of, you know, shares in a public business being, you know, really f- just that fractional ownership in a business and that, um, that the stock should be evaluated as such. From your seat, and we've talked about the multiples you're willing to pay um, or seek to pay and, and what you try to do after acquisition. What are some of the, absurdities that you see when you look at public markets? Is there, is there anything <laughs> that will you look at public markets and just scratch your head and think, how, how could this be happening? Well, I mean, so I don't want to step outside of my, my circle of competency too much here. I mean, I've, I've done a little pub, public investing in the past. Um, I mean, everyone, before I found the thing that I wanted to focus on and before I found the, what I would call the most inefficient market in the world, or at least the safest, most inefficient market in the world, you know, I paid attention, pretty close attention to the public markets. And I mean, I think there's no doubt that interest rates have caused a distortion in my uh, humble opinion. I, I think it's really hard if you're an individual investor to, you know, beat the average. I can't remember. I saw a stat recently, and Patrick, you probably know 10 times where I should be interviewing you on this topic 
But, you know, I saw a stat that if you're an individual investor, you know, the, the likelihood that you beat the, the average is like 7% or something or 6%. I mean, it's just unbelievably small. Most people, you know, are, are significantly underperforming benchmarks. And so I think the absurdity is it, you know, in it, it is, I don't think I can beat a Ray Dalio. Just to use an example, I mean, I'm, I think when you have people looking at every nook and cranny in the market and pricing things on, you know, a per second basis and, I think it's just really hard to uh, to find much alpha there, right? And again, you may completely disagree. That's my own personal take on it. But uh, that's why I don't even – I have no money in the public markets. I would never plan to put any money back into the public markets just for that very purpose. If I did, I, I am putting money on behalf of my, my daughter and my new daughter who's going to be born here in a week or two. I plan to you know put money into the markets for them. But I'm buying an ETF, uh, actually buying a Vanguard S&P 500 and – planning on never selling it. So I'm betting on the future of American industry and leaving it alone. <laughs> That's, that to me is the, the only uh, logical thing for, for me that, that I can do. What is your most memorable day at, well, you, you, you could choose either at Adventures or, or throughout your career, let's say. Boy, uh, professionally then, because uh, I've had some pretty interesting days personally. Um, let's, do both, but, let's do both. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay, so professionally, I can remember when I had just bought MediaCross. So MediaCross is the military recruitment firm in, in St. Louis. And the owners, the way it rolled out, we closed in the morning. And then he had an all-hands-on meeting, uh, all-hands-on-deck meeting. And I think it was 1 o'clock or one thirty in the afternoon. And so gathered back in his office. No one knew who I was. I had a, a guy with me who... Uh, was my right-hand guy at the time and was in his uh, late 40s at the time. So we go into the conference room. The entire staff is gathered there. Um, we're kind of seated off to the side. The owner, for, former owner at that point, stands up and says, well, guys, I have big news. I sold the company to Brent Bishore. And he kind of points in our general direction. And all of a sudden, people start looking panicky, is it, which guy is it? Right. And I, you know, you, your listeners can't see this. I look about 19 now. And I think at the time I looked about 13 or 14. And so they were like, you know, they looked over and the guy's name was Craig, who was my right hand guy. Awesome. Awesome human being. And they you know, looked at him and they were kind of like, oh, okay, I don't know who this guy is. And he said, Brent, why don't you stand up and come here and talk to the group? And, and I stand up <laughs> and I can still remember the looks on, it looked like somebody had been publicly executed. Like it, the looks on their face were sheer horror, terror. Um, they had the company had just been sold to a twelve-year-old, and I, I will never forget that day, uh, probably for the rest of my life, because there's nothing I could do about it. Right? There's nothing I could do about it. I totally understand their reaction. I like to joke about how young I look still today. How old are you? I'm 33. So, but uh, I get carded sometimes. I actually was on a. Uh, uh, on a trip, uh, and the drinking age was 18, and I got carded two years ago. So I look young. <laughs> There's just no two ways around it. So I may, I, would, not, I may not look 19, but I feel your pain. I, yeah, I, I actually thought about buying what, like, some reverse just for men early in my life. I need some gray in there. A little bit of gray hair. Actually, it's funny you say that. Uh, we always used to joke, uh, Craig, the guy who I was with at the time that his main role was to just stand there and look imposing, look, look older, right? So that he could olden us up if you, if you want to call it that. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that's, that's probably a moment. That's amazing. 
How about personally? It sounded like you, you probably have uh, an interesting one on that or two on that side as well. So I had the opportunity uh, in law school to go and study international law in Cape Town. And I don't know how much you know about apartheid politics and the sort of remnants of apartheid, but you know, it's still a messy place today. Um, I yeah, mean, African. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's messy. Um, you know, my interest in poverty and, and helping alleviate poverty, help uh, understand the underlying causes and how, you know, really just get a more full picture of the complexity led me to an interesting situation that I got one of the uh, professors that I had uh, worked with a little bit through the law school who was friends with an owner in Google Letu. So Google Letu uh, is made famous by the Google Letu Seven, Seven Women and Children Murdered in Broad Daylight by Police uh, Under the Apartheid Regime. Horrible situation, extremely impoverished area. Uh, over a million people live in a very dense shanty town environment. I mean, these people are scraping by as an understatement. And so I wanted to go in and help understand. I want to see it, you know, sort of touch the medium, right? I wanted to understand it for myself. And and I got this guy to take me in and he assured me that I'd be, I'd be safe. It is, it was a remarkable experience, but for an unexpected reason, I thought I was going to go in and, you know, see a people beaten down and, and misunderstood. And, and there was that, but there was also a lot of hope and a lot of amazing vibrancy to it. And I couldn't quite figure out, you know, when we got out of the car uh, at, at this butcher shop, this big guy met us and he said, oh, this is the owner of the butcher shop and went in and, and they put a giant bowl of meat in front of me. When I say a bowl of meat, I mean probably three and a half pounds of seven different times of meat, kinds of cooked meat, right? And I had already eaten and the guy said, welcome, Brent, welcome, eat. And, and I said, oh, I'm good. And the guy who I was with, like, you know, hits me in the side and says, eat the meat, like eat it now. And so I started getting down on the meat. We went on a tour after that of the, the town. And when I say the town, I mean, just this tiny little portion of it. And everyone was looking at me. I mean, I was the odd man out. And I had this weird feeling where it looked like, like people were kind of looking down, looking sideways. And so it was a very strange experience. I get back and, and come to find out the owner of the butcher shop was the largest drug dealer in all of Cape Town. That butcher shop was well known for taking care of people who uh, didn't jive with his uh, wishes and desires. Let's put it that way. Very interesting experience. So I, uh, uh, I, 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 I touched the medium in a way that uh, was, I think, a little unexpected, if you want to put it that way. Wow. So you probably needed a glass of wine after that day, and yes. that, that brings me to your foray into winemaking. Oh, um, yes. So, so the boondoggle. Yeah, this is this is going to be uh, probably unbelievable that this is yet another dimension. Given you're 33 years old, you're making me feel uh, like I need to speed things along. <laughs> uh, but but talk about talk about wine. So, uh, uh, Beeshore Family Vineyards. What was the story there? So, uh, my wife and I, uh, when we first met and had just gotten married, so she's a scientist. Like like I, t I told you, I think before I actually started recording, like I I married up in a big way. She married down in a big way. Uh, I apologize for it every day. She's a PhD in molecular microbiology and immunology. So she's incredibly brilliant, wonderful, kind-hearted person. And we just figured out early on with my background as an MBA and, and JD and her background with a PhD, we kind of struggled to find mutual shared ground like early on, right? And so we started enjoying wine together. We both sort of got interested in it. We started going out to Napa Valley 
And um, to make a long story short, met some owners out there, got to really be integrated in the community over, say, seven, eight, ten trips. And somebody said, you should start making your own wine. And we said, no, we're from Missouri. And the guy said, no, no, no. I used to be an architect in New York. Like that guy used to be whatever. Everyone out here is, you know, out here for the dream. You should just start, you know, just do it. And I said, well, how does that work? And he said, well, you just, you know, find a winery. You, you, you sort of get a consulting winemaker. You buy grapes. You, you know, buy barrels. You rent a crush facility. And, you know, you just, just do it. And I said, well, okay, I guess we need a hobby and it'd be fun to try it. And so we did. And that was kind of the start. My wife and I just decided to make, I think the first year we made two barrels. No, no, no. We did three barrels. We did uh, one Pinot Noir from Russian River, which is an area in Sonoma that's our where our favorite Pinot comes from. And then two Cabernets, one from Howell Mountain and then one from an area called Coombsville, which at the time wasn't an AVA, but now is and recognized and pretty, pretty interesting, uh, kind of upcoming area of Napa Valley. But did you ever, ever run across, uh, O'Shaughnessy wine? It's no relation to me on Howl Mountain. Uh, we are wine club members. There you go. Yep. We served my, my wife's maiden name was Messina. And so at our wedding, we had Messina beer and O'Shaughnessy wine. Oh, know? that's not, awesome. Not, neither was affiliated with either family, but, uh, that's that, really cool that's, for anyone that's interested in wine. The O'Shaughnessy Howl Mountain Cabernet is pretty good stuff. Oh, it's off the charts. It's actually, um, um, they're, I think they're fully allotted now. We got into the wine club, uh, before they became fully allotted. I don't think you can actually. Uh, I don't think they're taking any new wine club members, unfortunately. So if you ever see it, I think they have a limited distribution. So if you ever see it at a menu at a restaurant, it's uh, not cheap, but it's uh, delightful. So where does, it, where does it stand now? Do you still make wine? So we made wine this last year. Um, we're going to take a break. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of headache. And I, it's sort of, it's like owning a boat, except instead of pouring your money into the water, you just pour your money into the ground. What we've learned is that we like drinking wine. We like making wine less. And yeah, so I think, I think we're going to, we may go back to it someday and, and, and test on it some more. But I think for the time being, I think I've got, I don't know, 80 or a hundred cases of our wine in my basement. So um, I, I think we're, I think we're good for now. One of the, uh, I have no snappy transition to get back to, to business, but <laughs> one, of, one of the most interesting things that I've read that you've written was about different types of debt. So forget traditional, uh, you know, money-based debt. Um, you write about culture debt, code debt, systems debt, expectations debt, um, things along those lines. Could you maybe pick a few of those and, and describe what you mean and why they're important to businesses and, and maybe how you think about them when, when looking at targets or managing your, your portfolio companies? Yeah, absolutely. So, so this goes back to the comment I made earlier about small businesses, you know, not staying small on purpose. So typically when we go in and we analyze the, what I would call the quality of the underlying business, it's not only what's the growth rate, it's not only, you know, what do we think the future prospects would hold on the upside, it's also what's the downside. And I think a lot of these things are a mixture of, you know, if you don't have, um, so let's just take code debt. Code debt's an easy one because if you're in technology at all, you know the term code debt. What code debt means is, you wrote code, the underlying technology, let's call it that, for the product has been written quickly and not documented and isn't easy for somebody else to jump into and is kind of patched together over time. So instead of being thorough and systematic and sort of setting the table for long-term success, you, you, the decision was made either consciously or unconsciously to 
take some shortcuts, let's call it that way. So that we, we do find code debt in, in some of the companies, uh, depending on what their technology systems and stack is. But I would say uh, more often we find what I would call culture debt or leadership debt. And culture debt is just, you know, there, there's not high trust amongst the employees or there's a certain cultural element that is impeding success and potentially causing some extreme liability. So I would say an example of this uh, that we see quite a bit is, is a focus on making the employees focusing on making themselves happy uh, at the expense of their customers. And, and where does that usually flow from? Right. It usually flows from an, an owner or leadership group that is focused on making themselves happy at the expense of the employees. So, you know, uh, we, we try to go in and, and sort of diagnose what are these pockets of opportunity? Because we're paying for a base case, right? So we're, we're paying at, at the prices that we're paying. There's risk is baked into the equation, right? So the margin of safety is fairly you know, considerable, at least in the types of deals that we do. And so we're assuming we're going to find, uh, I call it the squiggly things, right? So you pick up a rock and all of a sudden there's all these squiggly things underneath the rock. And what do most people do? They take the rock and they put the rock right back down on the squiggly things. And they're like, whoo, I don't want to see that again, right? Our job is to pick up the rocks, look at the squiggly things, figure out how to remove the squiggly things, or at the very least, mitigate some of them. And kind of, you know, sunlight is the ultimate disinfectant. So bringing these things up over time, I mean, it's not a, you know, slam down the door first day, you got to build trust, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a function of being able to uh, earn the respect and earn you know the trust of the people over time. Make sure they know that you're not um, trying to call them out and trying to make them look ridiculous or like they don't care because that's just never true. I mean, we work with amazing people. It is unbelievably brutally hard to run a company, and I think that's one of the things. If I was going to say the average investor that I've met significantly underestimates how hard it is to run a company. Uh, I've heard investors, especially public market investors, say, oh, my gosh, look at that business. Any idiot can run it. Right. And Buffett's quoted as saying, you know, buy a business that any idiot could run because sooner or later that'll happen. And, and while that may be true and the dream come true is to own companies that idiots can run, idiots aren't running successful companies typically and hopefully aren't running the companies that we choose to get involved in. So it's more just, you know, opening people's eyes to what more could there be. Uh, how could we choose to focus time and, and the highly limited resources that we have uh, into the, the highest and best use, right? We got to look at opportunity costs. We got to look at, you know, the risks to making the change. And, and those risks are not insignificant, right? Even in a culture that you think it'd be easy to say, oh, gosh, if we just focused everyone on caring about the customer more, well, <laughs> if it was easy, they'd already be doing it. So it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. You have to redo incentive systems, you have to help kind of realign people. And, and ultimately, if people don't get on board, you got to make tough calls. Um, and I think that's a you know, large part of what uh, we're able to do is just really hold the mirror up. What's the biggest miss that you've had? Uh, a company where maybe you looked and passed um, or and this could be a, you know, a more late stage type or an early stage type. Um, and, and maybe what lessons, more broadly speaking, beyond the, the, the biggest miss have you learned from deals that you've not done? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> Boy, this one's painful for me. OK, so uh, I try not to think about this one much. Actually, I, I do think about it a lot. But 
we had a chance, gosh, six years ago, I had a proprietary deal. Proprietary means there's no intermediary involved and there's no other, it's not a competitive bid situation. So this is a person coming to me and saying, this business is for sale. If you can buy it at this, you know, if you can come up with this much money, the business is yours and you, you can own it. Um, so we had a proprietary deal come. Uh, it was a good friend of mine who brought it to me and said, hey, I know these guys real well. They're, they're um, some discord in the company. The, the owners can't get along. It was in the advertising technology space. And they owned a lot of inventory and they were very early on into the, you know, installing widgets on sites and gathering ad inventory and then reselling it at unreal margins. <laughs> so anyway, we had an opportunity to buy that company for, I think it was a million three, maybe a million four at the time it was doing, oh gosh, I want to say 250,000 dollars a year, maybe 300,000 dollars a year of profit. So the multiple looked high on it. And at the time, I sort of definitely was into the uh, Ben Graham style private investing, I would call it, right? I hadn't, I hadn't found my munger yet, my munger gene, and I wasn't willing to overpay under any circumstances. And I loved the business. I thought it had longevity. It was a great for sale opportunity. Uh, I was getting it at, you know, in hindsight was a tremendous discount. Uh, that company uh, was sold to somebody else, and then three years later, that company sold for about $35, 40000000 million. That hurt. Jeez. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, the, the lessons I take out of that, right, are, you know, I saw somebody in the venture business said this the other day, you can't always focus on the downside. You also got to use your imagination and say, what could it be? And there's some businesses that just lend themselves better to that than others, right? Um, you know, if, you, if you're getting into an old school, old style business that, you know, is, is selling a very clear package of services and, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to see, you know, what it could be. But if you're getting into newer technology areas, if you're getting into uh, sort of interesting, unique models for businesses, I think that you have to use your imagination. And we, we've tried to do that. I'm more and more and more be willing to stretch a little bit if the um, situation presents itself. So maybe a, a twist on that question of, is there an example of one that you said no to for, for some reason and you could tell me the reason and then, you know, it really worked out. Um, so, so missed uh, a missed, not a missed investment, but one that you passed on for that turned out to be a great pass. Oh yeah. Boy, I would say I've got tons and tons of those examples. I'm trying to think about, it. I mean, this is, this is basically almost every day. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, you know, most, most businesses in the 2000, uh, you know, 1700 of those probably, probably are examples. Of yeah. And I think this is actually the interesting point, you know, cause, cause you know, if I was one of your listeners and I wasn't familiar with, with my area of the world, I'd say, man, it sounds like a load of BS that you can buy a company for a 25% cash, immediate cash yield, right? Like that's just not, there's no way that's true. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, it is. And it is insane, right? It's only insane though. If you can find the ones that are deserved to be sold. The problem is most of the companies are untransferable or intransferable. I don't know what the proper English is, but they shouldn't be sold. Most of these companies are set up and there's so much, you know, of the types of debt we talked about, culture debt, leadership debt. There's so much inherent risk. You know, I think of the, uh, was it Buffett or Munger who talks about the buried suit problem, right? Like the, I haven't heard that one. Oh, I think it's in one of Buffett's letters uh, way, way, way back. And he talks about uh, the, you know, a uh, guy got a call from his sister and he said, uh, his sister said, oh my gosh, her father's died. 
and he was overseas. He couldn't attend the funeral. He said, well, you know, you get everything taken care of. I'll pay for it. And so, you know, the funeral happened. He got, you know, the bill for the funeral. He paid it. And then every month thereafter, he started getting another bill. And he went back to his sister and said, hey, what, what's the deal here? I, I thought I'd taken care of all the expenses for the funeral. And he says, oh, yeah, sorry about that. We accidentally buried dad in a rented suit. <laughs> right. So I, I always think about that analogy. To me, that's an, a really interesting mental model for what we're potentially inheriting with the businesses we're buying. Right. Like, what are the buried suits that we're buying that we're going to be paying on for basically the rest of our lives? And a lot of that is the debt that we talked about. So, you know, the, the honest to God truth is that most of the businesses that are under, I would say for sure under $5 million of owner earnings and even some under 10 million, you know, gosh, it's, it's a pretty hairy situation and it is fraught with all kinds of risk. And I think if you run a Monte Carlo simulation on those companies, I'm not sure that you get to a place that gets you much of a return. And so again, you know, our, our big, you know, if you want to call it edge or the thing that we've done, that's that, or at least what we're trying to achieve is, you know, buying cigar butts, what look like cigar butts at cigar butt prices. And, and hopefully we buy a cigar through either assessing the business better, discovering the business better, or adding a lot of value. We try not to, to, to over negotiate. And I think that's an unusual point. And I think that's something that actually is a big differentiator for us. And I don't know if we want to sort of dive into that side of things, but we try not to, we're trying to develop a relationship and there's no worse way to start, start off a relationship than saying, ha ha ha, I got a great deal. You got screwed. Right. So we got to play the long game. So how does that work? Do you, let's, let's take an example of you bidding for a company. How many back and forth will there be? What, uh, when you say you don't over, uh, overdo it or over negotiate, flesh that out a bit more. That's, that seems interesting. Yeah. So, so if you think about it, I think this is, if you ask me, what is our single greatest edge we have, or sort of what's our, what's the adventures competitive advantage? It would be our mentality seems to be so different than almost everyone else we're bidding against in the sense of we're playing the long game. We're not playing a one-time game, right? We're playing, playing a very, very long game with an ownership group that we hope to actually, you know, keep on their expertise, have a great relationship with them because they are the, they're the key to the business, at least in the, in the medium term. Um, and we don't just do that only for that reason. I mean, it is self-interest rightly understood to use a, you know, Tocqueville quote, right. But more than anything, you know, we're doing it because it's, profitable in the long term to do it that way. And it's also the right thing to do. I mean, how lucky are we that we get to you know, engage in activities that are both, you know, fruitful and I think morally sound, I guess you could call it. So we try to really focus on incredibly high integrity. We try to be extremely reliable. Um, so we're not flaky. Uh, <laughs> you know, so much in private equity is lob out der- uh, term sheets, deal sheets, uh, just, you know, kind of it's a machine and you just lob enough out and enough come in and you kind of screw around with people and you don't close and you try to renegotiate. And we don't do any of that. We only get, you know, whatever we put on paper, we stick to unless there's sort of a material change in due diligence that we find, which is not uncommon, but also not incredibly common either. And, you know, we just try to focus on a win-win situation, right? I mean, if it's a, if it's a win-lose for either party, it's not sustainable, like there's no way that that makes sense long term. So people will hear or have heard, you know, 25% cash on cash returns and and that's the that's the stuff of uh, you know, salivation. 
and 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 I'm always I'm always hesitant to think, even let myself think about returns like that. And as a, as a dyed in the wool, albeit quantitative, but a dyed in the wool value based investor, where you know a lot of the best outcomes come from growth, individual outcomes come from growth stocks, but as a category, it's been very bad. And so chasing after you know twenty five or percent returns is almost going to certainly result in inferior returns um, in, in most situations. But if someone was interested in doing something similar to what you do, what are what are some of the maybe personality characteristics that you have or, or key people that work with you have um, or things, skills, skill sets that people could work on cultivating, especially, you know, younger, younger people out there that could um, allow them to thrive in, we'll call it the private, you know, small mid-market private investing space? Yeah, that's a great question. So in order to answer that question, I think it would be helpful if I, I know this was actually your kind of part of your last question that I didn't even answer because I forgot that you asked it, but what is the actual process? So let me walk through the process and there's no magic to this. This is, I, you know, I think pretty standard, but you first got to find deals. And, and this may seem like uh, an easy task considering at the end of the day, you're selling money, uh, which should be intuitively the easiest thing in the world to sell. It's not. <laughs> it's really, really hard to find good deals. The easiest way, especially if you have very little money uh, to find deals, is to go on deal websites. Um, there's like buy, sell, biz. There's a bunch of these listing sites, right? And unfortunately, uh, the the inside ball game on that is if it's if it's for sale and it's up on one of those sites, it shouldn't be sold. Basically, it shouldn't be bought. I mean, there are exceptions to that. There are there are rare situations, but for the most part, it's you're going to be chasing your tail a ton because um, those are businesses that sort of have no other options. So if you start if you find a business that's publicly listed, it, it just probably isn't a fantastic base case situation. So how do you find deals? You got to go knock on a lot of doors. You got to talk to a lot of intermediaries. Um, they get hounded all day long. You know, lawyers, accountants, wealth managers, and there's an incentive, sort of an inherent negative bias that they're going to have because they know uh, as a service provider to these companies, if they sell, right, the lawyers, accountants, those types of people, uh, typically they're going to lose that piece of business. So in fact, it's a really, really hard place to find them, but that's, you know, that's a source. Intermediaries are another source, as I mentioned, they come in all different kinds of flavors. I, I kind of put them into two buckets of uh, on a spectrum. One is the very, very low-end business broker. These are the people that it, it's basically a real estate agent for a business is the way I would look at it. Those people are, I, I mean, it, they are just a pure connector. They are saying, hey, my client is over here. You're over there. Uh, here, hold hands and good luck to you. And let me know if you guys sell and I'll take my fee. Um, so very much like a kind of a real estate transaction. And then on the opposite end of the market are, you know, very, very, very skilled intermediaries, uh, which are typically known as investment bankers, depending on the firm and depending on the reputation, they're going to be doing very deep analysis. You got to be careful with those people like anybody else that if they're doing all the analysis and they're providing you with all the numbers, um, there's going to be a bias against giving you an accurate picture or not completely clear picture. Uh, and typically on the upside for the business selling, of course, what's the, uh, the proverb or the old saying, uh, whose uh, bread I eat, his song I sing. So I think that's a, 
that's kind of a dangerous situation too. But you got to, you know, going to intermediaries is a is a is a must. The way you got to look at that is, unless they're bringing the deal to you as for a very specific reason, they're probably taking the deal to, oh gosh, hundred. 150 people, they may be hitting an email list. And so, you know, you always got to look at your base case chance of winning a deal. So if, you know, just at the pure number standpoint, if it's sent to a hundred people and you're one of a hundred potential buyers to the business, what are your chances of winning the business? 1%, right? So, you know, I think that, that finding the deals may seem like the easy part. It's actually not. So I would say, um, you know, that's really challenging. Once you found the deal, understanding, doing the actual analysis, which I would say is pretty close to what any investor does. And that's what we kind of covered earlier. It's really, really hard. Right. Um, but you've already had to go through another hard gate to get to that gate, which is hard. Once you get it under a letter of intent so that so that the pacing of it is, you know, get to know one another, sign an NDA review data, send over what's either called a term sheet or an indication of interest. Once that indication of interest is in the quote unquote ballpark, then you draft what's called a letter of intent. Letter of intent is much more fleshed out, detailed version of the term sheet and uh, typically gives the uh, buyer uh, of choice the uh, exclusivity on the deal for a, a certain period of time, call it 60 to 90 days, somewhere in that ballpark typically. Here's the interesting part. Once, well, actually, I'll ask you, Patrick, what do you think the odds are once a letter of intent is signed in a deal in the lower middle market, it closes? Hmm. Good question. Um, I'll guess like a third of them close. 22%. So you got to think about it this way. One in five. One in five close. So that shows you, again, how difficult it is to even once you're the exclusive buyer, once you have exclusivity on the deal, uh, there is so much that happens and is so difficult to try to get information. I mean, these people are running the company. There's egos involved. There's you know maybe an intermediary involved. You're not sure what kind of game of telephone you're playing. You know, it, it is there's so much intricacy. I mean, the deal that we closed in December, I remember we were let's see here, two weeks before close. And I had an open issues list that I was running. This kind of part of my process and due diligence. You know, what are the issues we still have to resolve before we can close the deal? And two weeks before close, a pretty hard close date, I had 130 open issues, 130 things that I had to negotiate as part of that deal. And this is two weeks before close. The intricacy and level of detail and making sure the taxation gets right and making sure that that the incentives are set up properly. I mean, it is mind-bogglingly hard. And by the way, you haven't even closed on the business. You don't even own the business yet, right? So I, I'm, I'm trying to present an accurate picture. You know, why can you generate those, you know, high returns is because even before you get to the starting line, which is, hey, you closed on the business. Now you own it. What are you going to do with it, right? You've got to get through, you know, 15 really, really high gates. And the chances of, of even closing a deal, um, you know, are are hard. I would say if you ask me from a standing start, what is the likelihood that a smart, well, well-read, well-versed, maybe even experienced business executive would find a deal and close a deal that is a valuable deal, that's a good deal, that would be a positive ROI deal in the first two years? And I would say maybe 20% chance, maybe 15, somewhere in that ballpark. 
I mean, and again, that's where it sounds like a dream come true when you just look at it retroactively or historically. Yeah, we've been able to generate great returns, but we've also eaten a lot of glass. What keeps you going? So let's assume, um, you know, you're 33. Let's assume you do this for another seven years and you're... Oh, gosh, in seven years? No, no, no. no, no, I plan on doing doing this until I'm 85 or 90 or 95. Yeah, so it starts to get to the answer to my question, but... Under the hypothetical that you know you you, you compound at at you know maybe not twenty five percent because you get bigger or something, uh, but at an impressive rate and and it, obviously it's not about the money. So w- what particular aspect of it creates this what seems like a tremendous like personal momentum in you that, or, or insatiability? Like it, is is there a is there a is there a part of the process? Um, which is laden with difficulties and high high hurdles, as you point out, that that keeps you coming back every morning. Yeah, I mean, I I, I love what I do, right? So my my test on am I am I on the right track or not is, uh, do you do what you love in a place that you enjoy with people that you admire, right? Like that to me is the that's the ultimate test. And we I'd be happy to not close a deal for five years. Or, you know, if we're so lucky that we can find the best deals that we want to close, I'd be happy to close five of them in one year, right? Ultimately, it's not about the outcome per se. It's about making, I I kind of make an analogy for golf, right? So if you ever play golf and you know that you can make a good swing and get a bad outcome, but typically if you make a good swing, you get a good outcome, right? And I just love swinging, like I just, it, everything about it, I get to work with some of the smartest people in the world. I mean, you know, Shane coming on board, we've got an existing team that's just absolutely dynamite. Um, I have a ton of respect for the people I work with and, and it's just, it's a blast. I get to, I get to hang out with really, really, now not everyone would say they're cool people. They're not celebrities, right? They're not, they're not, uh, you know, sort of, uh, Nobel prize winners. Typically they're really good people and they really care about their communities and they're having a lot of fun typically themselves. And they've done very well for themselves, um, before we came along. And so, you know, I, uh, I just can't imagine having a better job. Like, you know, the, the joke that Buffett says about tap dancing to work, like that's me most days. Like, I think I live the most blessed, great. I'm so grateful for my life. Like, it's just absolutely amazing. What are the things that you know, I ask this of everyone because I'm just fascinated with, and you've already mentioned how important for you process is that you know, you're not setting some return goal or wealth goal or anything. It just sounds like you want to enjoy yourself every day. And I'm always fascinated to know what the things are that you do every day that you feel are, are the most important habits or sort of daily values that have led to you know, the well-being and good things in your life. Um, maybe that people can emulate that results won't be the same, but, um, sort of daily systems are, are everything I think. And so I'd be curious to know what your key points are on a daily basis. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd say the single biggest determining factor of the success we've probably had is the compounding of, of knowledge, giving yourself time to, understand how the world works, uh, think deeply about the way the world works, try to learn new things about the world and try to <laughs> try to get a more accurate picture of reality every single day. I, you know, I make a lot of time to, well, I shouldn't say it depends. I, I go through sine waves, right? Where sometimes I'll have like, um, a lull in deal flow and everything's kind of clicking along at the portfolio companies. And if I was going to jump in, I'd probably cause more of a mess than I would help. 
you know, thank goodness I have a wonderful uh, woman who's the president of our firm named Suzanne Byland, who's, um, you know, she's the best business decision I've ever made partnering with her. And, you know, she'll tell me to go sit in the corner for a while. And as I, uh, I like to call myself an isolated extrovert. So I, <laughs> I have this desire to engage. And I think the way I, I have an outlet for that is in reading. Um, I have a conversation with the authors that I read. I read, you know, depending on where my uh, interests are, I read a lot of articles. You know, I, I have a probably a stack of 50 books that I'm going to get to, you know, at some to some degree. And sometimes I'll read 10 books in a month or 12 books in a month. And other times I'll read two or three in a month. So, you know, it kind of varies depending on where my interests are um, and engagement. But I would say just the compounding of knowledge. I mean, for me, uh, you know, a lot of knowledge is found in the Bible and my, you know, prayer life's important to me. Uh, that's something that, you know, I've really, um, you know, has been a blossoming for me and I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, say it. And I think that's, you know, again, kind of goes to the whole compounding of knowledge and understanding. Fascinating stuff. What is the kindest thing that anyone has done for you? We'll say professionally. Wow. Kindest thing. So it, it's easy to look back and tell a tight, nice story of how everything came together. And, you know, I, I hope anybody with experience probably realizes that that's not the case, right? Things are, life is far more messy than quick sound bites explain. And I, you know, my entrepreneurial journey initially over the first couple of years was, was rough. I had, I'd gotten myself into a challenging spot. I mean, making money's hard. <laughs> Creating a stable company from scratch is, is just, uh, it's, it's like eating glass. I think that's a great analogy uh, every day. And, you know, I'd gotten myself into a spot where there was a lot of big egos involved in, in the business and some challenging things that happened. And I had a, um, some people who acted very unethically and unprofessionally. And, man, I was just kind of at the end of my rope. And there's a guy who worked for me. Uh, his name's Craig Brace. And, and he's the guy I was mentioning before that was looked a little older and came into the acquisition with me. And it was probably, you know, six months uh, or so before that, that I, you know, really hit the bottom of the trough. And I can remember, uh, you know, crying on my way to work. I mean, the sound you talk about raw. I mean, this is just the reality of it. I think a lot of people go through this, but, you know, I, I thought I was complete failure. I thought I was doomed to, uh, you know, I sort of had dreams about, you know, having to get a fast food job or something. Right. And I had a guy named Craig who was older, much wiser, super, just one of the kindest human beings I've ever met who, you know, I opened up to him and he was one of my employees. Right. And, and I kind of had this moment where I was like, I should be working for him and not, not in reverse. And he, he just, you know, he gave, you know, he, he sat there, listened to me, was patient with me. And for about, you know, a month or six weeks, I mean, kind of nursed me back to health. I don't know how else to describe it, like mentally and emotionally. He just, he was a rock. I mean, just unfailing rock. And, you know, if it wasn't for him, I mean, I probably haven't told him this enough. You know, I, I, uh, I think things could have turned out very differently. So I think sometimes we all just need a, a person to be real with. And, you know, I, I hate the culture around business and that everyone's killing it. Right. And that's why even I hate talking about the returns and all of that side, because it sounds like such bravado BS and I don't want it to come across as that. Like making money is brutal, right? Like, like trying to be successful in business and just operate any business, regardless of the business you're in. I'm sure the investing business is exactly the same. It's just so hard. 
And I think you need to have real relationships with people. And, and, you know, I'm not saying trust, you know, to that degree, a lot of people, but I think you need to find some people that you really can cry in front of and be your worst in front of and be your most insecure in front of and uh, hope they love you uh, regardless. And um, yeah, he definitely, he definitely was that for me. So I don't know if that's, that's probably a really weird answer. No, it's a, it's, it's a great one. And uh, this is one of my routine questions. And like many others, it's, it's sort of, the answer is one of integration um, and and understanding. So um, I think that's a great place to wrap up. This has been just an awesome, awesome conversation for me since it's totally outside of my area of what, what's led my career. Um, so thanks, thanks so much for all the time, all the interesting stories, all the lessons I think that, um, certainly are super applicable for someone that wants to be in the private investing world, but, but more broadly as well. So Brent, thanks so much for, for all your time. Yeah, Patrick, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey everyone, Patrick here again. To find more episodes of Invest Like the Best, go to investorfieldguide.com forward slash podcast. If you're a book lover, you can also sign up for my book club at investorfieldguide.com forward slash book club. After you sign up, you'll receive a full investor curriculum right away and then three to four suggestions of new books every month. You can also follow me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Oshag, O-S-H-A-G. If you enjoy the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes, which will help more people discover Invest Like the Best. Thanks so much for listening.